a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there, and welcome to the show, my fellow wrong thinker. This is a gathering place of people who are willing to challenge the narrative, not because we think we have all the answers, but because we just have this sneaking suspicion that somebody might be feeding us a line or trying to steer us into what they consider approved opinion. And usually when that happens, historically when that happens, that's because they have something up their sleeve, something that's not necessarily in our best interests. Case in point, let's talk for a moment about all of these uh, these pop-ups, these story covers, these opaque things that come up on social media. I'm seeing this a lot on Facebook that says this story contains false information and and, and people even being flagged on Facebook. Hey, so-and-so, you liked a story that contains false information about COVID-19. It's everywhere. People are getting, you know, uh, put in Facebook jail for offering opinions or posting videos that that somehow go against what uh, is considered the approved narrative. And, you know, that approved narrative, I don't know. I I know there's we're supposed to believe everything that Dr. Anthony Fauci says. We're supposed to believe whatever the the line is that the heritage media is feeding to us at the moment. Even though these things can change back and forth and sometimes contradict what they were telling us even just a few weeks ago. Yeah, so if we're having some trust issues, that's that's one of the reasons why. But I I'm just surprised at the number of pop-ups and and here's the thing that i think and maybe maybe this makes me one of those tinfoil hat wearing conspiracy theorists but i'm going to go ahead and say it anyway when someone is so determined you can't think that you can't see that or you shouldn't even consider that that's wrong 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 i get less of a sense that they're trying to protect me or or help me find truth so much as they are trying to keep me on track and make sure that <clears throat> my blinders are are working correctly, they're adjusted, and keeping me focused strictly on what Tom Woods calls that 3 by 5 index card of allowable opinion. In other words, I think that uh, there's there's something that's being kept from us. And, and I don't mean in the sense that, yes, they have the remains of the flying saucer that crashed at Roswell in 1947 out at Area 51. I'm talking something more important, like, for instance, in uh, the hydroxychloroquine debate. How is it that there can be those who will say at one point, well, it it, uh, may have some value, but we've got to study this so closely, but we're going to rush the vaccine through and everybody's going to be required to take this vaccine so that we can finally put, you know, COVID-19 to rest. And yet there are other medical professionals who say, no, look, here are 300 case histories of people with COVID that I have treated, all of whom who have have recovered or people who have used this drug prophylactically to prevent getting the disease. I don't know. You know, I I understand there can be disagreements. Science is, is never about, you know, well, the matter is settled and this is the only way it can be. Things that science thought it knew or thought it understood are subject to change as further light and knowledge come to, to uh, you know, their understanding. But hydroxychloroquine and the narrative that it doesn't work, 
according to some, is the biggest hoax in recent human history. Felipe Raffaele has a great piece on Medium. We will have it linked in the show notes today, so you can check this out for yourself. And Felipe Raffaele says, for those who were afflicted with the pandemic, or if you're afraid of dying or losing family or friends, he says, I would like to inform you, I am the bearer of good news. And his article is titled, Hydroxychloroquine, the narrative that it doesn't work, is the biggest hoax in recent human history. He starts by uh, quoting Didier Rao, a professor of infectious diseases at the IHU Marseille on uh, June 24th, the French National Assembly, when provided a testimonial for a special commission. I do not know Trump or Bolsonaro, said Raoul. And Felipe Raffaele says, there I saw that the teacher has already started to understand the hole that got involved and who were responsible for creating the first wave that screwed him over. This wave, after all, placed him by chance as an important piece at the center of a chessboard of the most ferocious geopolitical debate since the end of the Soviet Union. In addition to the denial of knowing Trump or Bolsonaro, which is quite fun when Raoul tried to distance himself from these two demented leaders, the infectologist reported serious things. He suffered death threats soon after proposing the treatment of COVID-19 with hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin, two cheap and generic drugs. Now, the doctor behind the threats was found, and it's from a university hospital in Nantes. Incidentally, he was the person who received the most money from Gilead, a large pharmaceutical company, during the past six years. And here, Raffaele Filippe, or Fipiele Raffaele, rather, sorry, my bad, says, I propose to put together piece by piece the puzzle of what I consider the biggest farce in modern history. He says, I don't worry about producing a short text. This is going to have analyses, new ones, and from different points of view. It involves science, healing, politics, geopolitics, mass and group psychology. And with the scenario set, it's not difficult to predict good and bad things that will happen in the coming months and years. He says, throughout the text, the reader will understand the most important thing, and that is the circumstance of how this false narrative was put together. And the reader will also be prompted by itself to conclude whether the treatment proposed by Didier uh, Rao works or not. And you will understand how the majority of the North American scientific class from Latin America and Europe, regions of the globe under strong influence from the USA, were directed to an incredibly gross error. He says, in addition to the facts and figures which are accompanied by external links, all I write are my own opinions based on the facts in first person from my point of view of how I see the world going completely insane in front of me. And he says, I'm not afraid to sign my name when publishing it, even though I know, even though I know that the almost unanimity of Brazilian scientists are against the application of these drugs and repeat, there is no scientific evidence of the functioning. And he says, one thing I'm sure will attract attention, the fact that I have to give examples with incredibly basic logic as if I were talking to children to explain the facts. But he says it's necessary. The farce has gone so far back that I need many examples and analogies to bring, the re to bring reason back. Signed, I make it available to cover me today or in the future. If my analyses prove to be incorrect after all, it is not a simple or light claim. So he's putting his name to this. He is, he is putting his reputation on the line. I'm not going to read the study to you. It's long. It is incredibly long. But I'm going to put a very small challenge before you, and I'm going to ask you to consider this. How serious are you 
about knowing for yourself or at least doing your due diligence to apprehend the facts concerning this hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin treatment of COVID-19. And for that matter, looking further into why is it that those in power and those who control the levers of power, including many of the institutions or the uh, the platforms from which a, a great deal of information is broadcast to uh, the world and to the nation generally, why are they so insistent that we not consider differing points of view or divergent points of view? It does kind of seem like something's up, doesn't it? I know I understand this. That sounds conspiratorial. I'm not talking about a smoke filled room of fat cats. OK, this is the official menu. And here's here's what you're going to say about COVID-19 today. I'm just talking about that for some reason, it's very clear we are being told you may think this. You must not consider that or think that. And it seems that if you trace the, the lines back to wait, who's telling us that we're not supposed to consider this? It comes back to people who in some way, shape, or form are seeking greater authority or greater control or consolidation of power over our lives, our businesses, our medical decisions. They may be claiming we're just trying to do the responsible thing here. Don't you know we're experts? But that's the problem. Too many experts have become infected with authority. And because of that, every every decision that they make, every pronouncement that they give from on high is tinged with a question of, wait a minute, in whose interest is this being made? Because as I'm looking around, I see what may be one of the worst policy decisions in American history being carried out over the protests of many Americans who are scared to death about a disease that we may not be getting clear information on. All right, I'm going to hop off the soapbox here for a minute. We're going to shift gears coming up in the next segment. I know that if you are listening to this program, there's a good chance you probably have a mind to be prepared. And I'm going to introduce you to a couple of friends of mine, and we're going to talk about an essential piece of preparedness gear that should be in everybody's 72-hour kit. It should be in your car emergency kit. It should be in your long-term preparation. It's the ability to make a fire under any conditions. Oh, sure, you can buy thousands of lighters or matches. Wait till you hear what these folks have to offer and how it's better in every single way. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, we welcome you back to the show. I am so happy to have a couple of very special guests joining me all the way from across the country in New Hampshire. I want to welcome Ron and Ilma Fontaine, who are with Firesteel.com. Ron, Ilma, thanks so much for being on the program. Yeah, thanks for having us, Brian. We're excited to be here. Well, I know you two are freedom-minded, but I also know that you're also very preparedness-minded. And that that has a special place in my heart because I like to be prepared for the unexpected. That way, things which could have been an ordeal turn out to be more like an adventure. And to that end, (laughs) fire is a very important part of preparedness. And I don't know which one of you might like to tackle this question, but why is the ability to make a fire so important for someone who really wants to be prepared? 
Well, it's probably the most important thing, fire is. And that's because it can keep you warm no matter how cold it is. Um, you can cook food with your fire. And uh, you can actually, say you're lost in the mountains, you can create sparks from your fire steel, and it can be seen from miles away. And they can locate where you are. Yep. You can also use your fire to make smoke, like in smoke signals, smoke, a very yeah. traditional mm-hmm. uh, sort of SOS kind of and thing. And also another interesting thing is one of our fire steels can make 15,000 fires. Yeah. Try wow. carrying 15,000 matches. Oh yeah, well, and and to to illustrate this, you know, I anybody who has seen the Tom Hanks movie, um, what is it called? <laughs> uh, now it, the what name is just it? is what is it called? Oh no, uh, cast, wait, cast away. Cast away. That, that's the one. Sorry, I, yeah, it wasn't Saving Private Ryan. He had a Zippo for that one, but no, it in uh, in Castaway, that was one of the big quests he had stranded on a desert island, and and for him to make fire, it shows all the different techniques he tried, and and it was it was just backbreaking effort, and the whole idea here right. behind the fire steel and some of the various products that you guys have toward that end, is that they'll work in any weather. As, as Ron mentioned, you don't have to carry around a mass amount of, of lighters or matches with you, which, you know, could, could be problematic. But, but boy, if you need one, you got to have something that's going to work every time, right? Yes. And also you could drop one of our fire steels in water, pick it up, wipe off the water. It's good to go still. So let's... They work even when wet. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about how these are made. I know people are trying to visualize it in their mind. Okay, I've got the mountain man, you know, the piece of flint and steel striking a spark. Kind of like that, but this is much, much more advanced, isn't it? Yes. Um, they're mostly made out of two elements, iron and cerium. And what a lot of people try to do is cerium is very expensive. So they try to limit the amount of cerium in their fire steel. But that's what actually makes the most sparks. So they sell cheap fire steels by not adding so much cerium, and therefore their fire steels aren't nearly as good as ours. Right. They don't throw off as much sparks. I mean, they'll right. spark. It's just like if you hit a nail with a hammer, sometimes you'll get a spark, right? Because that's what happens when you expose fresh iron to air. It is it oxidizes. But as Ron was saying, the cerium and other rare earths have the property of creating really good sparks very readily. Um, and so, yeah, so our, our fires still have a really good concentration of those rare earths, which make them spark really easily and really well. Mm-hmm. And I want to attest well, actually, that what they're describing here, it's it's not just a little single spark that, oh, you had to look or you might miss it. I mean, I you sent me a gob spark, and I took it outside in the dark to, to try it out, and, and the first thing I noticed was my kids, even my adult kids all came running, whoa, what is that? Because <laughs> it was so <laughs> yeah. noticeable. It throws off a shower of sparks. Seriously, a pinch, just a pinch of dryer lint and one strike, and it there's a flame right there. Yep. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. And uh, we use birch bark. You just shave off some birch bark into small pieces. Yep. Um, what works really well is you take some cotton balls and mesh them with some Vaseline petroleum jelly. Yeah. And one spark hits it, it'll burn for several minutes. Yep. It's a good way to get your fire started. Yeah. So waterproof tender. Yeah. So and they work in any weather. It can be 60 below zero or 100 degrees Fahrenheit above zero. 
this is the thing I wanted to ask Ron and Ilma both is what you're describing sounds like the kind of thing that uh, would be found in uh, maybe in in a military personnel survival kit. Do do you sell a lot of these to the U.S. military? Oh, yeah. We buy a lot of ours. Yep, yep. Preppers, hikers, hunters. Yep. I mean, we've got, it's not like a contract, but we do have several bases which regularly place orders with us. They just keep keep us in, in stock, you know. So that when they have a deployment or when they have to make sure that their uh, soldiers are outfitted, they have our gear on them, um, which is a you know quite an honor for us to to know that we're being relied upon um, to basically keep people alive. Um, it's a life saving tool, not just you know for your backyard grill, although certainly it can you know. Can, it can work for that too. Okay, Ilma, you um, you just nailed me on something that I I have a, a little a three burner propane stove, and sometimes the okay. the little piezo lighter in there is a little bit finicky, and I don't like uh-huh. trying to strike a match and you know risk getting close to that propane. Right. So I will take right. I will take the gob spark and stand back and throw a spark into it from a safe distance, and I mean I still get the yep. whoosh as as it ignites, but it, it feels so much safer to yeah. me. Yeah, for sure. Actually, I've got a, fi- a funny story about that. We recently uh, had one of our customers from Finland, actually. We, we do send these all the way, all over the world. Um, I, I posted a, a sort of a challenge on Instagram, our Instagram account, which is firesteel, D-O-T-C-O-N, because we had to spell it out for them. Um, it's like at firesteel, D-O-T-C-O-N. And I, I posted a challenge to put what's the most unique way you've started a fire using our firesteel. And I think it was about at about, I want to say close to six feet, two, two meters, I think is what he said. He lit his sauna with our cop spark from Juvie and it's on our, our Instagram page. You can look it up. It's pretty remarkable. I think that's got to be a record. But yeah, so yeah, you can you can use it for your grill. You can use it for your sauna. It would stove. It would That's stole. what a lot of people do. Right. Right. Yeah, and, and, and you don't have to have, like, caveman or mountain man skills to do this. This is something a beginner could pick up and within a couple of tries be throwing really nice, healthy sparks, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. for sure. People have sent us videos of their little kids using it. Oh, yeah, that's another one that's on our Instagram page or on our Facebook page, too. Little, I think that's the current world record is a <laughs> four-year-old, one of our customers, <laughs> Was, was joking around with me and he said he had a four-year-old son. He was going to teach him how to start a fire. And I said, I think, you know, if you can get him to do it, I think he'll be the youngest one because our previous younger one was five. And he took that as a, as a dare. And he's the cutest little kid. He's sparking his little fire still like a pro. Yeah, four-year-old can do it. I mean, my goodness, you know, yeah, pretty, pretty, pretty cool. We've got just a couple of minutes here left, so I want to I want to give you a chance to steer our listeners towards uh, your Facebook page, your Instagram. I know you have a website too, and you have a lot of products. This is not just a one size fits all thing. So, in in no particular order, people who want to see this with their own eyes, where do you direct them online? Go to firesteel f i r e s t e e l dot com, and that's our basic website catalog, if you will but you can also find us at Firesteel, except you have to spell out D-O-T-C-O-M, both on Facebook and on Instagram. And we'd love to have you as a follower. Check out the videos. There's also some, a lot of YouTube uh, videos that customers have posted uh, using our products and doing reviews and whatnot. And so, yeah, we'd love to have you guys uh, join us as followers or ask questions. We're always here available to answer any questions you might have. And make sure you're prepared. I mean. 
yeah, that's the biggest thing is make sure you've got a product that's reliable. Don't take our word for it. Do some research and I'm sure you'll come back to us. I, I want to make clear, there are cheaper fire starters out there, but you are not paying a lot for a real top of the line one here. I mean, it's it's worth, it's rare that you get what you pay for. This is one of those instances. You get what you paid for and a bit more. We'd like to think so. Yes. Well, I'm I'm gonna yeah. I will boldly proclaim it, having seen it and handled it and used it myself. I think, I think you guys have a wonderful product. Again, we're talking with Ron and Ilma Fontaine. They are with FireSteel.com, and if you don't have one of these in your kit, you probably better get on fixing that right now. Thanks again to both <laughs> of you. We need to talk again real soon. Awesome. We look forward to it. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. Welcome to the show. This is a gathering place for those who revel in wrong think. Not because we're being contrarian, but just because somebody with their finger in our chest is trying to tell us you can't think that. You can't say that. You can't believe that. And as lovers of freedom, it is our duty to push back. You know, I've been watching with a lot of interest all the different things that have been changing around us over the last five months. I, I'm not the only one, of course. I think everybody's kind of sitting back in a in a mixture of horror and, and wonder about, really? So this is the way things are going to be now. And I try to look on the good side. I really am a cup half full kind of guy. I, I want to look on the positive side. And every so often I see something that just makes me go, yeah, that's a, that's a good point. Now, Kerry McDonald, who you have heard on this program before, has been instrumental in helping promote the idea of unschooling for children. And right now, education in America is sitting at a very interesting crossroads because concerns for COVID-19 are delaying the start of the school year for a lot of school districts across the country. It's changing the way that teachers will teach. It's, it's challenging the whole public schooling model. And, and by public schooling, I mean government-delivered schooling. Carrie McDonald, this is going back actually about three years ago. She wrote this article called Schooling Was for the Industrial Era. Unschooling is for the future. And I don't offer this as, boy, this is the catch-all. It's going to change everything for everybody. But I think she identified a trend, and the, the moment of decision may be at hand to see if this trend is ready to take hold. You know, every every idea that has ever changed society in any way, shape, or form takes time to thread its way through the consciousness of society. And, and eventually, when I think it's when about 10% of the people strongly hold a belief in that particular idea, a tipping point is reached. Malcolm Gladwell actually wrote a whole book on this called The Tipping Point. Fascinating stuff. But once you hit that tipping point, it will spread generally throughout society. It becomes conventional wisdom. People are okay. Yeah, we, we can agree with that. But it, it takes just as little as 10% of the population holding firmly to that idea. And I think a lot more than 10% of the people right now are in that mode where they're, they're perception of what uh, schooling should be or could be is in a state of flux. And and so in interest of that, I offer you some thoughts from Carrie McDonald. Again, this was written three years ago. This was not written in the age of COVID. 
but it's very applicable to some of the decisions that we're facing today. The title is Schooling Was for the Industrial Era, Unschooling is for the Future. And she asks the question, why are we still schooling kids like we did in the 19th century? Carrie McDonald says our current compulsory schooling model was created at the dawn of the industrial age. As factories replaced farm work and production moved swiftly outside of homes and into the larger marketplace, 19th century American schooling mirrored the factories that most students would ultimately join. The bells and buzzers signaling when students could come and go, the tedium of the work, the straight lines and emphasis on conformity and compliance, the rows of young people sitting passively at desks while obeying their teachers, the teachers obeying the principal, and so on. All of this was designed for the factory-style efficiency and order. But she says the trouble is that we've left the industrial age for the imagination age. But our mass education system remains fully entrenched in factory-style schooling. By many accounts, mass schooling has become even more restrictive than it was a century ago, consuming more of childhood and adolescence than at any time in our history. The first compulsory schooling statute passed in Massachusetts back in 1852 required 8- to 14-year-olds to, as- to attend school a mere 12 weeks a year, six of which were to be consecutive. Now that seems almost laughable compared to the childhood behemoth that mass schooling has now become. Carrie says, enclosing children in increasingly restrictive schooling environments for most of their formative years and then drilling them with a standardized, test-driven curriculum is woefully inadequate for the information age. In her book, Now You See It, Kathy Davidson says that 65% of the children now entering elementary school will work at jobs in the future that have not yet been invented. Wow. Let that sink in for a moment. She writes, in this time of massive change, we're giving our kids the tests and lesson plans designed for their great-grandparents. And Carrie McDonald says, while the past belonged to assembly line workers, the future belongs to creative thinkers, experimental doers, and inventive makers. The past relied on passivity. The future will be built on passion. In a recent article on the future of work, author and strategist John Hagel III writes about the need to nurture passion to be successful and fulfilled in the jobs to come. He says, quote, One of my key messages to individuals in this changing world is to find your passion and integrate your passion with your work. One of the challenges today is that most people are products of the schools and society we've had which encourage you to go to work, to get a paycheck, and if it pays well, well, that's a good job, versus encouraging you to find your passion and find a way to make a living from it, end quote. So passion-driven learning should be the goal here. And Carrie McDonald says cultivating passion is nearly impossible within a coercive schooling structure that values conformity over creativity and compliance over exuberance. This could help explain... it. Or compliance over exuberance, rather. This could help explain why the unschooling or self-directed education movement is taking off, with parents migrating from a schooling model of education for their children to a learning one. With self-directed education, passion is at the center of all learning. Young people follow their interests, they pursue their passions, while adults act as facilitators, connecting children's and children and teens to the vast resources of both real and digital communities. She says, in this model, learning is natural, it's non-coercive, and designed to be directed by the individual herself rather than someone else. What a concept. 
Self-directed education and unschooling often take place in homes and throughout communities, but increasingly individuals and organizations are launching self-directed learning centers geared towards homeschoolers both full and with both full and part-time options. These centers make self-directed education more accessible to more families in more places. And each has a unique philosophy or focus. Some of them are geared toward teens and value real-world apprenticeships and immersion. Others are maker spaces that emphasize, emphasize tinkering and technology and so on. Carrie says in Boston, for instance, the J.P. Green School in the city's Jamaica Plain neighborhood serves as a part-time self-directed learning space for homeschoolers and unschoolers with a focus on sustainability and nature connection. Co-founder Andre Zaleska says... People educated in coercive models will be damaged for life. By the way, that means most of us are. The lack of respect shown to their autonomous selves as children translates into a lifelong tendency to get what they need by any means necessary. She says we're part of a growing counterculture which finds traditional schooling damaging in ways that are intertwined with the general brokenness of the culture. End quote. So Carrie McDonald says, instead of complaining about the education status quo... Entrepreneurial individuals are building alternatives to school that challenge it. Centered around passion and overarching belief in self-determination, that may make that individual self-determination, these entrepreneurs who are often parents or former school teachers and others who become disillusioned by coercive schooling are freeing young people from an outdated and harmful mass schooling system. Enlightened parents and innovative entrepreneurs may be the key players in constructing a new education model focused on freedom and designed for the infor- the imagination age, rather. I'll have a link to this article in the show notes. Um, just so you know, every day I put together a nice list of show notes, including articles that I often don't have time to get to. These uh, can be found at thebrianhydeshow.com. It's really that simple. Thebrianhydeshow.com. Just go to the show notes and you'll find them for each day. Links abound. Lots of different things you can follow there. This is one of those worthwhile stories that I really hope you'll follow up on as well. Why do you think people resist the idea that, well, maybe we should rethink, you know, how we are educating children? I have a tendency, this is just an opinion, but I I have a tendency to believe it has more to do with the fact that that's the system most of us know, right? Most of us were educated in that uh, government schooling system. We're comfortable with what we know. Things that we don't yet know or things that are new to us, they seem hard, they seem threatening, they may seem kind of radical, depending on your point of view. And especially when you consider that we were trained up in a system that values conformity, that rewards it, that teaches compliance. You always ask permission, always, always, always. To this day, look at how many adults will sit in a meeting and, and just as they were trained as school kids, if an adult feels like, well, I have to go to the bathroom, they'll put their hand up in the air. Excuse me, I be excused. You are an adult. You don't need to ask somebody for permission to, you know, go use the euphemism for crying out loud. Where does that come from? Well, it comes from the 12 years or more that you spent in institutions where your life was trained by buzzers and bells and following the rules and staying within the lines and conforming that if you need to do something, you first must ask someone in authority. Gee, and you wonder, how did we end up with such an authoritarian bent in our government at all levels? It's almost like we were trained for it from our earliest age. I mean, almost.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. Once again, welcome to the show. A gathering place for wrong thinkers. And one of my favorite wrong thinkers, uh, I've only recently found the guy within the last couple of years, is a writer by the name of Kent McManigal. I get to emails each day in my inbox from everythingvoluntary.com. And in fact, you'll find if you go to my website, thebrianhideshow.com, I have a, uh, a list of resources for wrong thinkers. And these are some of the different news aggregators and opinion aggregators and different commentary sites that I like to visit on a daily basis, most of which I have subscribed to their daily emails. So it saves me a little bit of trouble of actually, you know, punching in the uh, web address or clicking on a bookmarked tab. It just comes right to my mailbox. But they put out so much good content. And, and I recommend them to you, not because I want you to think exactly like me. The funny thing is, one of the reasons I recommend these is because there is a real diversity of thought. This is not just, uh, you know, red state, rah, 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 blue state, rah, rah, rah. They, they for the most part, are very nonpartisan, but very principle-focused. And that's what I love. And among the many contributors, there are, there are literally hundreds of different contributors to these various sites that I list... Kent McManigal is fast becoming one of my favorites. He reminds me a lot of uh, Charlie Reese, who used to write for the Orlando Sentinel, in that uh, Kent just has a way of just cutting through the crud and cutting through the smoke to get right to the heart of the matter. And the examples he uses, I think, are, are right on. He's a little hardcore for some people. Some people are like, man, I don't know. This guy sounds like he doesn't really want much government at all. To which I say, well, you say that like that's a bad thing. But at any rate... Here is a recent uh, commentary from Kent McManigal. I thought this was a timely one. Government should follow rules, too. You know, yesterday we talked about anarchists, right? How we, we've been trained to believe anarchists are they're the people destroying Portland. They're those black-clad, firebomb-throwing, police-assaulting, rah, rah, rahs. Okay, that's, that's one way of looking at it, but you break down the word, it's actually people who do not require a ruler. Now, that doesn't mean you don't have rules. People will spontaneously organize themselves uh, with, with rules that work to the benefit of everybody. And if you don't believe that this can work, let me just give you this example. Okay, there are rules when you are driving in traffic. But I'm going to ask you, who tells you when it's time to put on your turn signal? Who tells you when it's time to decide, oh, I'm going to go to this grocery store over that grocery store? Who tells you to adjust your speed to the traffic? Or to go faster or to go slower. You, you make those decisions yourself. And there are thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands of other motorists on the road, all doing the same thing independently. There's a basic framework of rules and sometimes laws in which uh, those, those uh, movements are guided. But the actual nuts and bolts of the decision making don't come from someone centrally planning your trip. Now, I know we're getting to the age of autonomous cars and whatnot, so maybe that's going to change. But the point is you are very capable of getting in your car, driving yourself safely across a major city or across a rural area and getting where you're going with some basic understanding. There are some rules. Stay in your lane, signal, that kind of thing. Be reasonable. Don't let your behavior put someone else at risk. You make the decisions, though. It's spontaneous organization. And sometimes, you know, people get careless. Sometimes there are wrecks. But for the most part, 
we safely get where we're going. All right, let me hop off the soapbox there. Kent McManigal, government should follow rules too. He says, people seem confused about what role, if any, government plays in our lives. And this misunderstanding causes problems. Government was never intended to be the master, but the servant. Your servant doesn't tell you what you are allowed to do, nor punish you for not obeying him. The servant isn't allowed to do things in secret with the master's money, nor to keep any job-related secrets from the master. Your servant is accountable to you. Never the other way around. And what this means is if someone takes a government job, they either accept their subservient position in society or they can take a job without such strings attached in the productive sector. Forgetting their place should result in immediate unemployment with no chance of ever holding another government job. Kent McManigal says government wrongly claims to have the right to track everyone, spy on everything we do, collect all of our information, and punish us for doing things we have the natural right to do, but which government forbids. Well, Kent, Kent, Kent McManigal reminds us nothing can trump natural human rights, not even the opinions of the vocal majority legislated and enforced by government employees. People across New Mexico object to a requirement to wear, or police across New Mexico object to the requirement to wear body cameras, which help them be held accountable to their bosses, the people of the community. And he says if they can't do their job under this condition, they're free to find other jobs. No one's forcing them to be police. Locally, he says, people are begging government for permission to reopen their restaurants when the government never had the legitimate authority to shut businesses in the first place. This illustrates the danger of allowing the servant to require business licenses. It's none of their business who opens what kind of business, and nothing can make it their business, not even if this is how we've always done it, which isn't true anyway. He says local government is pretending it should have power to dictate whether someone should be allowed to use their own property as a subdivision. This is crazy. And Kent McManigal says, if we are to continue to fund government and give it our occasional obedience, there must be rules for it to follow. Since the Constitution's been ignored for the past century and a half or so, what do you suggest be tried next? He says, for those who want to keep political government, those who want to keep political government around, rather, are the ones responsible for keeping it out of the lives of everyone else. If you won't rein in your troublesome servant, his misbehavior is on your head. I mean, that's a pretty hard take, right? He doesn't mince words. But I think he's dead on right. And, and the only way that I could see us possibly shifting things back the way that they need to be is to put government back on its leash. You let it off its leash, you, you transform it from, you know, a protector of your natural human rights into some kind of an arbitrator of what you can or cannot do. I don't know if you've looked around and noticed this lately, but that, that circle of things that we can do is shrinking by the day. And in fact, it's becoming just a circle of things we are mandated to do by government. Bake that cake. <laughs> do this. Do that. Think this. Say that. At some point, you've got to make up your mind. What, what is government? Why does it exist? And I think that was really where, where Kent starts. People seem confused about what role, if any, government plays in our lives. I mean, some people have this visceral knee-jerk reaction when they hear the name Ezra Taft Benson. Some will recognize him. He was once the president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints uh, back about 30-some years ago. 
Others will recognize he was the Secretary of Agriculture under President Eisenhower. Whatever you may think of this man, I'm here to tell you that he was one of the most principled advocates of proper government and authentic liberty. And his essay, The Proper Role of Government, to me, still remains one of the defining essays of what the, the, the basics are that people should understand. By the way, it's not just Ezra Taft Benson's opinion of, here's what I think government ought to be, by gar, this is how it ought to do. He draws upon the actual thinkers and the, the philosophers that the founding generation drew upon as it drafted the Constitution, as it drafted the Declaration of Independence, for which they were willing to go to war with their mother country and secede from their mother country in order to assert that right to put in place a government that existed to protect natural. They called them God-given rights. You know, the ones that uh, Thomas Jefferson described as with which we are endowed by our creator. It's a short essay. It's not partisan in any sense, other than it makes some very strict limits on government. You know, it, it, it calls for them. It acknowledges that you can't have authentic freedom if government isn't limited to those specific duties, which, by the way, the founders did a wonderful job of doing in the Constitution. The only reason that the Constitution is ignored today is because the people have forgotten the importance of holding those with whom they trust temporary vested power accountable. When we say vested power, we're talking about something you can put on or take off like a vest. In other words, it doesn't become it's not tattooed on them. It's not a permanent part of whomever is in office. They are trusted with that power for a term of two years or maybe four years or six years and then. They are expected to hand it over when someone else is elected to put on that vest. The problem is government has grown out of control directly in proportion to the degree that we, the citizenry, have failed to understand what its proper role is and to insist that it follow the rules. It's something we could do anytime that we want. We can withhold our consent, if that's what it takes, to get government to obey as it should. But somehow that narrative has been flipped on its head, and we're led to believe that, no, 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 it tells us what to do so as to make our lives better. Don't believe that for a minute. The Proper Role of Government, Ezra Taft Benson, well with your reading. This is the Brian Hyde Show.